Join the millions of players around the world and bring in the new year with the all-time favorite classic match three game, Candy Crush Saga. It's fun to play and challenging to master with thousands of levels to switch and match your way through. Get that sweet feeling this new year with Candy Crush Saga. Download it now from the App Store or Google Play for free. Come in, boys and girls. Welcome to Cook Holland's Roller Derby. It's me, Blind Boy, and this is the Blind Boy Podcast. How is everybody this week? If you're a first-time listener, because uh, yeah, I'm conscious of a few first-time listeners because it's it's 2020 and I know there's been some recommendations. If you're a first-time listener of this podcast, I recommend going back to some of the earlier podcasts. Don't necessarily have to start here. This is podcast 118, which means there's 118 fucking episodes, which is a lot. So I would recommend not starting here. But you don't have to go back to the very start. You can if you want. But there's a lot of podcasts there to listen to. And I'd suggest that first before starting here. Because this week's podcast in itself is a continuation and a series of podcasts I've been doing over the past two years. Um, By which I mean... I've done four podcasts, I believe, on the history of disco music and how disco evolved into techno and house and shit like that. And I, I consider I consider disco to be an incredibly important genre of music in how it ushered in electronic music and it's a very just a very fascinating postmodern genre of electronic sound, you know. So I'm fascinated with it. So this week's podcast is going to be another... It's going to tell the story of disco and how disco evolved into, into electronic music. But whereas with the first podcasts I focused on New York, Chicago and Detroit, this week... I want to focus on on San Francisco because something in disco music happened in San Francisco at the same time that was separate that's quite interesting Um, before I get uh, into it what do I need to say yes my my BBC series um, I've I've made a television series on, on BBC which is on the BBC iPlayer for the next nine months I believe and it was released on I think like the 23rd of December a really strange it, it no it was released very late December the day after Britain had its general election so it kind of got buried a little bit and because it was the end of Christmas BBC didn't put a huge amount of promotion into it one of the stories on my BBC series, we we got a lot of influencers to. We got them to sell cyanide, as a weight loss formula, and that went kind of that went viral globally, which was great, but. 
I would ask you uh, get a look at my BBC series. It's called Blind by Undestroys, and it's on the BBC iPlayer for the next nine months. Get a look at it. It's four four episodes of a documentary. One episode is about work, where I look at how the boundaries of work are being redefined in the kind of contemporary era, how rights are being stripped away, rights that would have been earned post-industrial revolution, how they're being stripped away by the redefinition of language. There's another episode on modern slavery. There's an episode on the anxiety that we face as part of the internet. And there's another episode on how the internet is redefining reality. So there are four kind of documentaries as such with a philosophical thesis and some pranks in them, I suppose. So get a squint at them if you can. And also if, I know many of you got my book of short stories for Christmas, Boulevard Wren. If you did receive my book of short stories for Christmas and you're reading it, um, if you wouldn't mind, would you go onto the Amazon page and write a, a nice review if you enjoyed the book? If you didn't enjoy the book, don't write a review, please, if that's okay. But if you did enjoy the book, write an old Amazon review uh, for me. That would be very helpful. God bless you, cunts. So this week, what I want to explore and discuss is... A specific type of disco music from the early 80s, late 70s, that went by the name of High Energy, H-I-N-R-G. And it's unique from other styles of disco music in that it was almost the first to embrace electronic instruments as part of, of disco we spoke about post-disco music, which, you know, would have gone into R&B territory. Classic post-disco examples would be maybe the 80s work of Prince or 1982 Thriller by Michael Jackson, that album. That's where disco splintered off into a synthesizer-based R&B that was kind of slowed down, that defined a lot of 80s sounds. And then, the other strand of disco, disco evolved into house music, into techno music, in Chicago, in Detroit, and in New York. But then there was a separate type, which, some of it has its roots, it, it can have shared roots in, a little bit of New York. There's a genre called Italo Disco, which was an Italian version of disco. And also the San Francisco disco sound. And I believe high energy music traces itself to San Francisco. And that's what I want to talk about this week. Crucially too with high energy disco is... Like all disco music... Can be seen as an expression of gay culture. Definitely, right? In the first... uh, episode I did about the history of disco, I traced it back to the, the Stonewall riots of the late 60s in New York. So all disco music definitely has uh, LGBTQ roots. But that then splintered off into house and techno. High energy, 
is probably the most exclusively LGBTQ um, genre of disco of all of them. It was firmly rooted in in gay culture of of San Francisco and it kind of stayed with an exclusively gay crowd in San Francisco. And it's one of the few musical genres I can think of that also it died out because of the AIDS epidemic. Pretty much fucking the most important producers of high energy disco died of HIV and AIDS and a huge amount of the people who would have been listening to high energy died as a result or if they didn't if they didn't die the spaces where the music was being listened to shut down because of fear around HIV and AIDS in the early 80s and I can't think of any other genre of music that stopped because of an illness now it went on and evolved into other stuff but but high energy itself kind of stopped as a result of HIV and AIDS and what it did to the spaces where it was being played and the community um, I'm also specifically interested with music as you know I'm always interested how there's two things that I love about like I'm obsessed with fucking music history as you know it. I, I fucking adore music as you can tell by the amount of music podcasts that I do but what I'm always excited about is how different types and genres of music are shaped by the environment where they're from the culture that they're from and I'm always looking for what I refer to as the mimetic mutations within music by which I mean all art is is a conversation right music is a conversation when someone creates music and someone else hears it if that person is creative they're inspired to make more music based on what they've heard and from that a musical conversation happens and then kind of a musical scene develops and a sound develops from a community of people who are having a musical conversation and how that's how you kind of read that is you, is you refer to it as as mimetics right which is it's meme it I don't mean meme culture is in the how we now understand memes to be with the in, internet memes it's different to that it's a way of measuring culture the way you would genetics. In in a gene pool, um, successful genes survive and unsuccessful genes don't. So with something like literature or art or music, we replace the word gene with meme. So the theory goes basically that successful ideas in music survive and procreate and then unsuccessful ideas, ideas that don't kind of catch a crowd or don't get people moving their heads or bopping their feet, um, these don't survive. But then, similarly within a gene pool, you get mutations. In evolution of, of genes, every so often a mutation happens in a gene pool 
and more often than not the mutations are unsuccessful but sometimes a mutation happens that's highly successful and it spreads everywhere and something important happens to that gene pool it's the same with music every so often there is a mimetic mutation which means that one artist comes along and does something that is incredibly different and unlike anything that exists within the music and that becomes successful other people copy it so what I want to I want to look this week at a specific uh, mimetic mutation that happened within disco music in San Francisco in the 70s and early 80s that went on to influence and define music afterwards, alright? So, when, when we're looking at anything that's like comes from gay culture or queer culture, you have to always remember being openly uh, gay is something that like it's it, it's was illegal up until the latter part of the twentieth century in the majority of, of of Western countries, so it existed very much underground with a specific set of rules. So I spoke about how this unique set of rules and and uh, kind of cultural rules as a result of oppression um, created the disco scene in. New York but in San Francisco the same thing happened now what makes thing with San Francisco San Francisco has had a fairly strong gay community since after World War 2 like San Francisco has the the Castro district which I think was the first the world's first proper like gay district and I mentioned before in the podcast I did from San Francisco, but people said the reason San Francisco became a hub of, of a gay community and gay culture was because in the specific theatre of World War Two, they drafted a lot of young American men and women to fight in World War Two, Being gay in the military was obviously not something that was accepted in the 1940s so what happened was uh, with the navy in particular you had a lot of gay people who were discharged from the military from the US military around the 1940s World War 2 and because the US involvement in World War 2 was mostly against kind of the Japanese and the Pacific theater of conflict you had a lot of, a lot of naval bases around the Bay Area in San Francisco on the West Coast. So a lot of these people that were discharged from the military for being gay just kind of said, fuck it, I'll stay here. I'll stay here in San Francisco. Might as well. And then from that, you end up with a quite a strong uh, gay community. I want to focus on two San Francisco-based artists that were very important to disco music. I want to focus on Sylvester and a fellow called Patrick Cowley. Um, mostly... Patrick Cowley because Patrick Cowley is who I believe to be the mimetic mutation in disco music that created high energy. So what I want to start with is speaking briefly about the 
what's referred to as the, the summer of love or the countercultural revolution in America in the late 60s that was centered around San Francisco. So basically, quite simply, at the, at the end of the 1960s in America, you had the children, I suppose, no, they were, they were boomers, they were baby boomers. They were children that were born in the World War II baby boomer, bo- baby boom age, who came into their 20s in the, from the early to mid 60s. And they rebelled kind of against their parents' generation. They also grew up, I think, with a fair bit of affluence. And from this, we got hippies. Um, we know what hippies are, all right? The hippies were a large movement of young people who wanted to not get a job. They wanted to grow their hair long. They wanted to fucking ride each other as much as they wanted. They wanted to do drugs. They wanted to chill out. And they didn't want to live in to live by the rules of their parents it was also spurred on by the anti-Vietnam movement a huge catalyst too for the hippie movement I believe was the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 when people really thought the world was going to end the Americans and Russians came very close to all out nuclear war and the sheer terror and irrationality and madness of it spurred about the fucking, the hippies. Um, why San Francisco? Well, yeah, they all wanted to go to San Francisco. They all, San Francisco became the hub of this revolution. I would say a couple of reasons. Number one, in the 1950s, there was uh, the Beat Poets, which would have been... Again, a precursor to the, the hippies. Free-thinking people who were interested in art and poetry and they would there would have been a lot of communists and they would have been critical of the American system. They kind of set up roots in the 50s in San Francisco and the hippies kind of followed that. Also, I think the, the weather of the West Coast helped as well. Like, the hippies, they wanted to go to San Francisco and live in communes and live in squats. You know, and good weather helps that shit. So, this isn't going to be about the hippies, but what I do want to speak about is a group, kind of, I suppose you'd call it a, they were a theatrical group, but it was very much a queer theatrical group. And I say queer there now in the, in the, in the academic sense, not in the, not using it as a slur, but it would have been a, a, a queer group in the 1960s in San Francisco called the Cockettes, right? So I suppose you'd call the Cockettes uh, a queer theatre group. And they would have had their origins in... So the area in San Francisco where a lot of the the hippie stuff happened was it was a district called Haight-Ashbury. And the Cockettes met. They they were living in, in... what was called a, a utopian commune, right? So a lot of the hippies would go to San Francisco to live in communes, which meant they might take over a building, they might pull their money together and buy it, or they could simply be squatting, but they would live together, and in this, this instance, in, in a utopian commune, which meant everybody lived in the same building, 
And the, what they were trying to do, I suppose, was to live in a way that deconstructed, that, that didn't have a hegemony. It didn't have uh, the system of power that would have existed in, in American capitalist society. So it would have been a commune that would have been anti-ownership, um, anti-enforced heterosexuality, anti-racism, anti-government, just trying trying to do a, a new way of utopian living that's different to how society operates. So from the particular commune came this group called the Cockettes, this theatre group. And the Cockettes were founded by a drag performer called Hibiscus. Hibiscus was an actor born in New York, would have moved to San Francisco with the hippie movement in about 1966. There's a very, very famous photograph called Flower Power, right? And this is an iconic photograph. And the photograph is... It's it's an anti-Vietnam War demonstration where the US National Guard are confronting Vietnam protesters, right? And the National Guard are facing the protesters with their rifles out. And in this photograph, there's a person with a bunch of flowers and they're placing a flower into the rifles, directly into the rifles of the National Guard. And it's an iconic... Even the Simpsons made a gag about it. I think Lisa Simpson was putting flowers into into a soldier's gun in one scene. But it's an iconic photograph and it captured the zeitgeist of the era because the zeitgeist, like the slogan would have been fucking make love, not war, peace, not war, and flower power. So Hibiscus, this drag performer who wasn't in drag in the photograph, is placing flowers directly into the gun of a soldier with the gun pointed at them which quite a fucking brave thing to do so it became quite iconic but Hibiscus anyway founded this theatre group called the Cockettes and they were a psychedelic drag theatre group who would kind of ironically subvert um, American musical theatre tradition do you know what I mean? They would put on performances that would kind of parody standards of American musical theatre, but change up the lyrics to make them kind of cheeky or body, and they would dress in drag. Like Hibiscus used to they were all doing acid as well. That's the important thing with the when you hear the word psychedelic, it means that it was informed by taking acid. So Incredibly psychedelic, surreal performances that parodied the canon of American musicals. And Hibiscus used to kind of dress in in full drag with a dress, but also had a really long, big beard covered in colourful glitter, you know? So the Cockettes operated, like I said, as a psychedelic queer theatre and also as a commune and they did some just some really forward thinking weird different shit for the time that was quite ahead of its time um, in terms of 
questioning gender, questioning, you know, the tradition of, of American musicals, kind of being openly queer in, in a way that really wasn't acceptable at, uh, or considered acceptable by society at the time within art. And the coquettes were doing it. No, they didn't fucking invent drag. Um, the tra- tradition of drag, I believe, has its roots in the African-American community. But from the coquettes, who I, I like, actually, yeah, who, who came out of the coquettes? That was, there was Hibiscus, also a drag queen called Divine, who went on to work with the brilliant fucking filmmaker John Waters. Um, Divine, I think, had connections as well with Andy Warhol, I'm not sure. But the most interesting member of the Cockettes for me that I want to focus on was a drag queen by the name of Sylvester. And the reason I want to focus on Sylvester is... Like, Sylvester went on to become quite an important disco musician and singer in disco music. Sylvester was... African-American from Los Angeles and his roots, he grew up singing in gospel choirs and this is what I find interesting because when I'm tracing the kind of the roots of disco music over in New York or in Detroit if you trace it back to we'll say the African-American styles of music that would have influenced it You've got jazz, you've got blues, but importantly, a huge one is gospel. Gospel music is, African-American gospel music is, again, that would have its roots in African styles of call and response singing, but kind of mixed into enforced Christianity became a style of church singing that was unique to African-American communities in in the south of America. And then that travels up to the cities and becomes what we call soul. But then that moves on to disco. So Sylvester kind of was with the Cockettes experimenting with, you'd have to assume drugs because all the Cockettes were taking acid. So experimenting with psychedelic uh, substances, experimenting with drag. Um, Sylvester's thing was, whereas the rest of the Cockettes was, it was mainly white and they were trying to subvert and ironically parody we'll say American musical theatre Sylvester was subverting Billy Holiday and Josephine Baker Josephine Baker was a very famous uh, jazz dancer African American jazz dancer of the 1920s I think and Sylvester was subverting that subverting elements of his own African American culture within the Cockettes but the most interesting shit that Sylvester did was the post Cockettes disco music that he was making now what makes Sylvester so unique for me was he was I think the, the first proper disco musician to start embracing electronic instruments within his music okay when I spoke on previous podcasts history of disco music and I spoke about how in New York and Detroit and Chicago how electronic elements in the early to mid 80s started to become part of 
disco music and it, it stopped being disco and became house and became techno what was happening there was it was the early DJs it was people like Frankie Knuckles people like Larry Levant these were DJs who were taking pre-existing disco records that didn't contain electronic instruments they were uh, disco records that were made only with traditional human played instruments guitar drums bass keys orchestra right the the story of how disco becomes house and techno is when DJs who were playing records not instruments in the early 80s in New York Chicago and Detroit how they start incorporating electronic uh, instruments and and drum machines into pre-existing analogue music we'll say but with Sylvester, in the mid to late 70s, Sylvester was incorporating electronic music into his songs, which sets Sylvester apart from what was to come seven years later on the East Coast, we'll say. Now, I don't even want to focus that much on Sylvester for this podcast, because Sylvester's a legend. Sylvester is... Sadly, died of AIDS, was one of the first really public, proper um, campaigners raising awareness for HIV before people even fucking knew what it was. When Sylvester died, left all future royalties towards HIV charities that were in uh, San Francisco. Um, But Sylvester can definitely be seen as... Sylvester's music in the late 70s is definitely the origins of this high energy brand of disco that I want to speak about but it's down to Sylvester's partnership with a collaborator by the name of Patrick Cowley and Patrick Cowley is who I want to focus on for this podcast because like I said everyone knows who Sylvester is Sylvester has been celebrated Patrick Cowley has not been celebrated and Patrick Cowley is the mimetic mutation in all of this who was doing the really weird shit far far years 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 ahead of his time so to give uh, an example of the type of sound I'm talking about I'm going to play a little sample of uh, one of Sylvester's songs that would have had it wasn't produced by Patrick Cowley but Patrick Cowley was involved in the synthesizer part, basically. The person who brought electronic music to disco music would be Patrick Cowley in his work with Sylvester. And I'm guessing that Sylvester's openness to something like a synthesizer on a disco track was due to Sylvester's involvement with the psychedelic coquettes. Just the the climate of absolutely fucking anything goes and embrace all types of creativity and madness and psychedelia within your music. So, because synthesizers in the 70s, lads, were not cool. They were nerdy instruments and to use one in a pop song risked the music being uh, called novelty music. Risked it not being taken seriously. So I'm going to play a sample here of a song called Dance Disco Heat by Sylvester from 1977 which would have which had the electronic instrumentation on it from Patrick Cowley 
And what makes this high energy disco as opposed to other forms of disco is the tempo is much faster than traditional disco and the use of electronic synthesizers where a bass line should be. So that was that would have been Dance to the Disco Heat by Sylvester with the synthesizer arpeggio by Patrick Cowley, which in 1977 not a lot of people were doing. You would have had might have been happening in Italy, the likes of Giorgio Moroder. Um ironically at the same time Giorgio Moroder released a song with Donna Summer called I Feel Love which also used electronic uh, music with a disco thing, but what makes that so special is it's much, much faster tempo and you have that lovely, very much the gospel background. You have the gospel background from Sylvester's background himself in starting off in a gospel choir. So it's quite unique. It's uniquely San Francisco. And that track... It was a bit of a breakout because there was another there was another song on that album called uh, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real and I think that got into the charts. So that was a breakout album but prior to it breaking out that music would have been played exclusively to a gay audience in San Francisco. And there's a few theories as to you know why was disco faster in San Francisco? The main kind of theory was, is what people say, it's that, you know, you look at what drugs are being taken. What what drugs are being taken for people to dance to a certain type of music and then you measure what's going on with that music in response. The drugs of choice in mid to late 70s San Francisco in the gay clubs would have been angel dust and poppers. Poppers in particular gives give people a very strong head rush and make them want to dance, and make you quite hyper. So that's one theory as to why high energy was so fast. I don't know. I think when I listen to that excerpt there, I hear the gospel choir. If you listen to gospel music as sung in African-American churches, and especially the kind of middle-eight bit, and when the clapping goes, it's that fast. So I don't think... I, I think it's the gospel element that's making it go that fast. I think Sylvester is telling the band what to do. Sylvester, it's, his heart is rooted in gospel uh, choir singing. And that's what's making it go that fast. But the electronic element to it that makes it really interesting, that's all Patrick Cowley. So I'm going to have a little ocarina pause now before I start getting into Patrick Cowley and why Patrick Cowley is so important. And the reason I'm focusing on Patrick Cowley is... 
Sylvester's widely celebrated. You don't need a podcast on Sylvester. You can find documentaries on Sylvester. But Patrick Cowley, very, very much not recognised. You won't find a Patrick Cowley documentary. Um, Patrick Cowley's only, only really starting to be recognised right now. So, hold on, where's my ocarina? Okay, here's the ocarina pause, which means there's an advert going to be thrown in somewhere. That was the ocarina pause. He got an advert there. Don't know what it was for. Also, this podcast is supported by you, the listener. This is a free podcast. Um, The podcast takes a couple of days to, to make in terms of researching it, deciding what the podcast is going to be about and then recording it. So quite a lot of work goes into the podcast and I put it out for free. But um, what pays for the podcast? The fucking Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Please, if you're enjoying the podcast and you're liking it, consider becoming a patron. Give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. And if you can't afford it, you don't have to. But if you can't afford it, please consider it. Quick plug for some live podcasts that I'm going to be doing just really quickly. Um, I won't go into specifics. I'm just going to say they're all happening in the first half of 2020. So Google these if you're interested. Blind by UK Tour, right? London and Glasgow are sold out, I believe. There's still tickets left for Liverpool and Birmingham. In February, I'm in Chiang Mai in Thailand doing a live podcast. Australia and New Zealand Blind Boy Live Podcast Tour 2020. There's some tickets left for that. I'm going to be in Vicker Street for three nights in April in Dublin. I've got a date in Galway with some tickets left for it. I've got the Cork Opera House and Belfast Ulster Hall. That's all I can think of off the top of my head. So if you live near any of them and you want to come to a gig... Throw it into Google. You'll be grand. All right. God bless. Recommend the podcast to a friend as well. So I'm going to move my attention towards Patrick Cowley. Patrick Cowley, it's... I don't think I've ever... I don't think I've ever heard anyone as so far ahead of their time musically as Patrick Cowley. How did I find Patrick Cowley? As you know, look, I fucking adore music. I don't give a shit what music it is. I just fucking love music so much. Every genre. So, a huge part of my day is spent just listening to music. And specifically, trying to find new music. Whether it be music that's happening today, or music that happened ages ago. And what I'm always looking for is... Stuff that went underneath the radar when it came out at the time. I'm continually searching for that. Usually how I do it is... It's because of YouTube. One of the great benefits of YouTube is... If you wanted to find rare stuff before... You had to find it on fucking vinyl. You know... A lot of this music, really obscure stuff... It never made it beyond vinyl. It never got made onto CDs or cassettes... It got one pressing on vinyl 
and then it disappeared and it only existed in whatever limited vinyls were available. But with YouTube, all these people who are obsessive collectors of vinyl, most of them are now uploading their vinyl to YouTube, which means that if you fancy it, if you're someone like me who's willing to spend hours and hours and hours just going through records on YouTube, 99% of it is shite, to be honest, but that's the fun of it. I go through people's old record collections of stuff they've uploaded on YouTube. And what I do is I listen and I listen and I listen and I fast forward. I don't listen to the full tracks. I'll go to bits of them and I'll just keep digging and digging. But it used to be known as digging in the crates. Like literally getting a crate of vinyl records, playing them all. And the reason I do it actually, yeah, it's 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 because I'm a fucking hip-hop producer. You know, when I started producing hip-hop, I wanted to find samples. I wanted to find very rare music that I could sample and put into tracks. I don't do it anymore because you just can't be sampling anymore, copyright and shit. But from that, I always had this desire to search and search and search for the rarest possible music. Which meant hours and hours and hours of just listening to obscure stuff online and I listen and listen every so often one in every 1000 tracks that I come across every so often something pops up and like I'd be in a playlist of we'll say 70s disco so I know that everything I'm listening to is going to be 70s fucking disco every so often something will come up and I have to double take. Usually what the feeling is, it's a feeling of a track comes on and I say to myself, no, that's wrong. There's no fucking way that this track is 70s disco. It sounds too weird. It sounds like something that was made in the 90s or the 80s. This has to be wrong. So Patrick Cowley was that for me. I was going through disco and Patrick Cowley came on and I had to triple take quadruple take because a track came on and I just refused to believe that this had been made in the fucking early 70s because to me it sounded like a 90s artist called Aphex Twin who's a really avant-garde electronic musician and this Patrick Cowley track came on about five years ago and I couldn't believe it was him and then when I went googling him I could only find about another six tracks and there was very little information. So this character called Patrick Cowley existed in my head as just, who the fuck is this? But now, for, for, for the past five years, more and more of his work is emerging. And each time new work emerges, it just blows the fucking head off me. Patrick Cowley is a mimetic mutation. Patrick Cowley was making music by himself that was unlike anything else being made anywhere else in the world. He's a mimetic mutation. Patrick Cowley has tracks that predate techno music and house and kind of down-tempo hip-hop. Predates them by 15 years, sometimes 20 years. Just a really bizarrely unique person. Cowley as well can also be credited as the inventor of high energy disco 
pretty much. But there's there's two separate kind of sides to Patrick Cowley's music. So that little excerpt there of, of Sylvester that I played before the Ocarina pause, that's Cowley's work as, you know, he, he did a lot of stuff with Sylvester. Cowley founded a, a little small San Francisco-based record label that Sylvester then joined. So there was Cowley who produced and added electronic instrumentation to, we'll say, artists like Sylvester to create disco that had an electronic vibe in it. And that'd be his work that would have been well-known, but like no one would have really... The people that would have known it was Patrick Cowley, it was a very small community. So there's that side of his work where he added instrumentation to disco productions, but then there's the other side of his work, which is only really being found and released in, I'd say, the past five years. And it's the other side of his work that makes me realise that he he might be one of the most fucking important electronic music producers ever. Like, in, in the early 70s, like, okay, you had Kraftwerk from Germany. In the Kraftwerk were mid-70s. They were making music exclusively electronic. Kraftwerk were big enough at the time. They get a lot of credit. I'm not taking it away from the very fucking deserve it. Kraftwerk were pioneers of electronic music. Then you had Giorgio Moroder, the Italian fella. You know, he did that Donna Summer thing, like I said. But Patrick Cowley, independently was doing much more fucking interesting shit, I think, but it was never, it wasn't getting released. It's only being found now. And it's flabbergasting. The vision of it. He was born in New York around 1950 uh, in a Catholic home. I'm going to guess, right, Patrick Cowley is a very Irish sounding name. Right? Cowley is an Irish second name his parents chose to call him Patrick, which is a very fucking Irish name, and he was Catholic, so I'm guessing, I'm claiming him for us, he was most likely uh, Irish-American Patrick Cowley from New York, right? So I'm claiming him for the Paddies. He was gay, can't imagine that went down too well in his fucking Irish-Catholic household in New York, so he fucked off to San Francisco when he was about 20. He appeared to have been completely unapologetically gay. He was openly gay in San Francisco and immediately got involved in the gay scene there, the gay club scene, the music scene. And he was working in, I think it was called the City Nightclub in downtown San Francisco, which was a gay nightclub. And he was, uh, he used to work the lights. He moved to San Francisco actually directly as a result of the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York which as I mentioned on the first episode of the History of Disco podcast the Stonewall represents the start of disco music proper and the gay scene in New York Patrick Cowley decides to fuck off to San Francisco in either 1969 or 1970 he was involved in bands in New York in rock bands But what really sets Patrick Cowley apart and what makes him so unique and strange for the time is when he gets to San Francisco at 
I think 2021. He, 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 when he gets to San Francisco, right, he goes to a place called City College and he was one of the first ever students. They had a new program in City College for electronic music. There was an electronic music lab in 69, 1970 and Patrick Cowley was one of the first ever students. Now, that's a crazy move for the time. Electronic music wasn't a thing in 1970. Electronic music in 1970... It... How would I fucking... It would have been seen as as somewhere on the avant-garde fringes of classical music. Or a thing called musique concrete. Which is like... Experimental noise. It's... It would have been seen as as really avant-garde art. It wasn't... Electronic music in 1970 wasn't necessarily seen as something that would graduate into popular music. When it kind of... Anytime it did in the 70s, it was a novelty. Um, and again, like there's such, a, there's such an interesting queer history to electronic music in, in, as well. Like, a, a real pioneer of electronic music, uh, I think they're still alive, Wendy Carlos, who's a, a trans woman, who was, again, an electronic musical composer. She, Wendy Carlos recorded the music for the film A Clockwork Orange, but in 1968, Wendy Carlos would have released an album called Switched On Back, which was the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, so classical music, but performed on a Moog synthesizer. But it would have been released as a curiosity or a novelty. Do you know? It wouldn't have been seen as proper music. It was seen as this kind of academic, classical, experimental composer who had released a curiosity novelty record with this new machine, the synthesizer in 68. So there's an interesting, like, kind of queer trans history across all electronic music, to be honest. But Patrick Cowley enrolls in the City College in San Francisco in 1969 or 1970 to be part of the electronic music department where he is learning how to use drum machines and synthesizers, but as art, you know, not as popular music, but as a way to compose avant-garde classical uh, compositions. So in the daytimes, Patrick Cowley is a, a young fella in college, learning how to use synthesizers, learning the emerging field of of electronic music technology, learning about avant-garde compositions, learning about music concrete, your man Stockhausen, all of this shit. But at night time, he was going to the gay sex clubs, he was going to the bathhouses, he was going to the gay discos. So he's hearing early disco, early funk, um... Philadelphia soul, all this type of crack, 
And it's in this scene then that he meets Sylvester and becomes palsy with Sylvester. And in the mid to late 70s starts adding electronic instrumentation to Sylvester's compositions. But the most interesting stuff that Cowley was doing was he, he was seen as kind of a, just someone who was always working, all the time. He would have had a home studio, which in the 70s would have been quite rare. He would have had a tape deck to record and then two or three different synthesizers and a drum machine and was making compositions by himself, for himself really, to be honest. Just what he would have considered very strange unique music but I hear it now and I just go what the fuck this is years ahead of its time so I'll give you a little sample to put into context the type of music that Patrick Cowley was making on his own in his studio that wasn't really getting released and this is the track that as I said earlier when I was going through all 70s music when this one came on I had to do the quadruple take I had to go, no fucking way was this made in the early 70s. No fucking way. I gotta double check because this sounds too far ahead of its time. The track is called uh, Somebody to Love Tonight. And what makes it so unique is, first off, it's all electronic musicians. Or, or, or all electronic instruments. The synthesizer for the bass, for the keys and a drum machine... But what sets it apart from anything being done at the time is, we'll say this track is probably 71, 72, if not 70, when he's in college. Kraftwerk would have been doing stuff at the same time, but I don't know. I think Kraftwerk were nearly a bit later. But any electronic stuff in the 70s, it was very 4-4 mechanical robotic it didn't have soul to it it didn't have this thing i'm going to play for you is is it's almost fucking electronic hip-hop years before electronic hip-hop and the audio fidelity is fucking incredible the drum machine is incredible nobody nobody was doing this in the early 70s so it's somebody to love tonight by patrick cowley i don't even think it was released makes that so unique for me and so special is like you have to remember that's the fucking early 70s that's he's making that around this like when David Bowie's releasing his first albums that's 
a good five or six years before Prince. That that right there is it's a mimetic mutation. That's someone on their own making music that no one else is making because they're at the forefront of electronic music. They're studying it in college and then listening to different types of music at night time and that's simply what happens that's the result visionary unique carry on and what strikes me about it is it's it's not robotic it's not like electronic mu- music in the 70s it's electronic music is like the stuff with house and techno it it can lack feeling that has tons of feeling. It has. It feels like live music, even though it's electronic. And from what I can understand, from reading about him, his process was quite unique. So what Cowley used to do in the early seventies with tracks like that, which he was just making for himself, really, or maybe just for college or fucking around with a synth, he used to get a live band. So like a live drummer, live guitar player, live bass player. And he would record a live performance of real musicians. They'd fuck off. And then he would steadily replace every single element of that live recording. The drums, the bass, whatever. He would painstakingly recreate and replace it with an electronic instrument. With a synthesizer and with a drum machine. And because he's copying real instruments. That's how you end up with the the swing and the feeling and the touch in that electronic track, which, I mean, that sound, it sounds like something from the fucking 90s. It doesn't even sound like anything that happened in the 80s. It sounds like something from the 90s. It sounds like trip-hop. Um, so what's happening now is, like, it's only now that a lot of Patrick Cowley's work is being found because... That shit was too far ahead of its time. He was recording it for himself, and what what he, what he also started doing, and, and the people that are that are archiving his work now and trying to find everything he made, what he ended up doing in the mid seventies, as a way to make money, was Patrick Cowley made a load of down tempo electronic music for gay porn films, so there was a bunch of 80s VHS gay porn that actually had Patrick Cowley's music on it. So the people in San Francisco that are now trying to archive his stuff, what they're doing is they're not going to music studios. They're having to contact defunct film studios and defunct directors or whoever was involved in in making gay porn in the mid-70s to try and find the original reel-to-reel tapes that Patrick Cowley made so there were mid 70s um, porn directors gay porn directors who were making feature length gay porn making it silently and then Patrick Cowley was scoring the gay porn films but like if you've ever seen 70s porn you'll know that the music is like kind of cheesy funky funk type stuff Patrick Cowley was doing his own weird electronic shit over gay porn for some money so that's what's happening at the moment 
Um, I found him in, like I said, about five years ago. Since then, about four or five collections of his music have been released. They're all on Spotify now, thank fuck. Um, but it's like even last month, a new album was released by him. And there's a lot of material because he he recorded a lot that they're they're going into attics of people who knew him in San Francisco and trying to find all his stuff because he's finally been recognised as an incredibly important visionary. Um. Now, like I said, there's that's the, that's the two sides to his music. To an extent, he he did have a certain level of success. If you include the, no, he didn't have success. He had influence. He invented high energy. The late seventies stuff he did with Sylvester, and then some of the. Unfortunately, Patrick Cowley was one of the first people to contract AIDS. He was one of the first people to... But they didn't even know what it was. He died in 1982 at the age of 32. And I, I don't even think he... No, HIV was discovered in 1984. So Patrick Cowley was one of the first uh, people to contract it and to die from it. He was very prolific in the last two years of his life. 1980 and 1982. That's when he started doing more exclusively electronic stuff with fucking Sylvester. And that's when high energy music starts to emerge. But it was only it was being played really only in San Francisco. And like I said, high energy is the only music scene I can think of where a disease killed it. Everyone, Sylvester died of AIDS. Fucking Patrick Cowley died of AIDS. A load of people died of AIDS who were involved in high energy including the clientele so it, it, it as as a genre it died but it, it moved it went on it transformed beyond the originators Cowley also I'll give you a little excerpt of, a, of another track just to show you how so this is another track he did which this is about 1973 I don't know is this one of the ones that was in the gay porn but this is just like like a techno track that'll be released today. This is called J- Jungle Orchids. Jungle Orchids, Patrick Cowley, um, made sometime in the early 70s. And that predates predates techno by a good maybe 12, 13 years, maybe 20 years. Um, Like I said, a, a mimetic mutation. Someone 
doing something that's so fucking vastly different, but at the same time, perfectly predicts what was to go ahead. And even though that side of his music, the stuff that he was doing by himself, the only release it got was on gay porn films, he also took the the energy that you'd have heard there, where that's more 4-4, straightforward dance music, clearly influenced by disco early disco that he was hearing just all electronic it's when he, he starts bringing that energy to the work he's doing with Sylvester and he had a very very prolific year in the last year of his life in 1981 where he released quite a few tracks with Sylvester and this is when it became known as high energy music it was being played pretty much exclusively in San Francisco to a community of a couple of thousand people in gay discos but also in the early 80s that's when you start seeing a lot of people dying from a mystery illness that they didn't know what it was in in they did not know what what it was in 1981 1984 the AIDS virus was discovered by by science even still, you know, um, names in the press for it at the time, people were calling it the quote-unquote the gay plague. They were calling it gay cancer. People thought that it was just this horrible disease that only affects gay men. Um, and Cowley was one of the first people to get it. And that whole scene disappeared. But... The tracks that did kind of go on is the high energy disco, the electronic disco music that Patrick Cowley was making with Sylvester. The vinyl started to travel and it became particularly big in the UK. And bands like New Order, like New Order opened up the Hacienda in Manchester. New Order were very much influenced by Patrick Cowley's um, high energy stuff who else would have been massively influenced uh, Bronsky Beat who were a queer UK act they had that song Small Town Boy in 1983 and one act that were fucking huge that because they themselves were gay and had been in like high energy like I said it got really big in the gay scene in the UK the Pet Shop Boys. Pet Shop Boys knew who Patrick Cowley was and in early interviews I think they were saying that Cowley was, was a big influence on their sound. And you can hear it because the, the if I had a critique of Patrick Cowley is he was a producer, right? There's a difference between a producer and a songwriter. Patrick Cowley was an utter visionary in, in, in the sense that he was using only electronic instruments, he was creating his own sound, he was putting it all together, but they're not songs. A song is the musical equivalent of a story. Production and songwriting are two separate things. When you mix the two together, that's when you've got a fucking hit. But Patrick Cowley's stuff, they don't re- the songs don't really go anywhere. There's... Often with his solo stuff, there's no lyrics in it. They're all instrumental. 
and it's more an exploration of sounds and feelings but it doesn't when I listen to Patrick Cowley I'll have it on in the background as as a a curiosity and I'm very interested in the sounds and all of that but I'm not really going to walk away from much of it kind of humming or whistling any of the melodies but what the Pet Shop Boys did because the Pet Shop Boys are fucking amazing songwriters Neil Tennant incredible songwriter incredible singer Pet Shop Boys would have taken Patrick Cowley's sound and then they would have mixed that with their songwriting ability to create incredible fucking pop music which is rooted in the gay scene the gay club scene where they would have been hearing Patrick Cowley's high energy stuff that he was doing with uh, Sylvester and also Patrick Cowley remixed he remixed I Feel Love by Donna Summer and did a much better version than Georgia Marauder a much faster harder uh, high energy version of it I'll play you a tiny bit of the Pet Shop Boys here song called Loves Comes Quickly so you can get an idea of how they took Patrick Cowley's sound but mixed fucking songwriting with it decent fucking songwriting so what you have is the beautiful electronic Patrick Cowley sound but a song that'll stick in your head That's Love Comes Quickly by The Pet Shop Boys. Probably one of my favourite pop songs ever. Just fucking amazing. Um, You've got that high energy Patrick Cowley influenced electronic production. But with a songwriting that's quite close to Motown. And falsetto melodies. Kind of like uh, Martha Reeves and the Vendellas or or a a bit of Diana Ross fantastic stuff so that's the legacy of of Patrick Cowley's I don't want to say mainstream like I said there's two sides to Patrick Cowley there's the stuff that got released for the dance floor the high energy stuff that was definitely underground as fuck but did travel and influence the likes of the Pet Shop Boys New Order Bronsky Beat the Communards right and then there's the mad underground shit which I don't think saw much release at the time outside of the gay porn films that they were in. And I think I think I think that early stuff that that will go on to influence people now as it's coming out now because it didn't really get um anyone hearing it at the time and the latest release like I said was a month ago so there's more to come and there's about five 
four or five albums been released in the past five years of his stuff he was just recording for himself. What became of high energy music? So you had the the early 80s. Mainly it went on to influence artists who, who were gay in the UK. Um, Dead or Alive is another example. Uh, Dead or Alive, uh, they have that song, You Spin Me Right Round. Then there was Fade to Grey by Visage and a band called The Human League, who were massive in the 80s, a UK band. Now, The Human League would have started off kind of avant-garde. The Human League would have started off influenced by Kraftwerk and Gary Newman, but by the mid-80s had appropriated kind of a high-energy sound with that song, uh, what is it, working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. But where high energy ended up is it moved away from being made by the gay scene to uh, Stock Aiken and Waterman, who were a huge production team in the late 80s, and they would have produced Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley, a load of fucking Kylie Minogue's early stuff, real, real early 90s stuff, and then Jason Donovan, all that kind of, to be honest, not, music I'm not too fond of, late 80s uh, UK radio pop, which that's where the high energy sound ended up it ended up I mean you could argue no, it went fully mainstream like, I know Kylie Minogue now is, is huge with the, the gay community now, but no, High Energy left its LGBTQ roots and ended up being co-opted and appropriated by Stock Aiken and Waterman to become mainstream pop in the late 80s, early 90s. So that's kind of where High Energy ended up. So... um. Look, if you like that, that that again, that was my fucking, another one of my disco podcasts, Electronic Music History Podcast, which is something I'm really passionate about. If, if I'm passionate about something, I'm going to do a podcast on it. If you want to hear more of that type of music, for my entire uh, disco podcast series, I also have a playlist on Spotify. Just go to Rubber Bandits on Spotify, and there's a playlist called... Uh, post-disco slash roots of house music and I've got about six hours there of every fucking disco you can imagine Patrick Cowley's in there I've got European space disco there's a Talo disco the lot it's all there in that playlist if you want to listen to that um, do go and listen to Patrick Cowley he's class so that's it anyway lads I'll talk to you next week I hope you enjoyed that I absolutely love doing music podcasts All right. God bless.